So many things run through your mind when Brother Mike is leading the singing. One of my first thoughts was if he would trim the hair out of his ears, he could hear the song requests that were being made. But we're not going to mention that. He's just selectively deaf at times. But uh, anyways, and then I don't know why he likes for all of us to say hallelujah at the same time, but uh, that's all right also. Hebrews chapter 7 tonight. Hebrews chapter 7. go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that we can come together tonight, that we can sing good and encouraging songs. We're thankful, Lord, for the fellowship that we can have and the fun that we can have with one another's company. And Lord, we are thankful for your word. And God, I pray that you would uh, speak to us tonight through your word. I pray that you would uh, just help us to give attention to it. I pray that you'd help me to communicate uh, what you would have me to this evening, and that it would come out in a manner that would be clear and understandable and uh, helpful to your people. God, I pray that you'd uh, bless this time together. I pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I told you that we would be in the book of Hebrews again tonight, and I would suspect that uh, most of you know that it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in our study of Hebrews because of different things. And uh, I would also suspect that you don't remember what we last looked at or uh, considered. And so I just want to remind us very quickly as to what we dealt with in the final portions of chapter 6, and maybe that will remind us a little bit of what uh, is being talked about, and hopefully it will serve as a, a help to us this evening. But you may remember that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 encouraged the believers to find a good example to follow and uh, shared with us several weeks ago how we do ourselves a favor in our spiritual lives if we find someone who is living a faithful life, if we see their testimony, if we see their effort to live for the Lord, we do ourselves a favor if we say something to this effect, we want to follow that example. And so from there we watched as the writers spoke of Abraham and how he would have been a faithful example to follow. And then we watched as the writer talked about the faithfulness of the Lord and he spoke of how our salvation and our hope uh, that we have in our salvation is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. And it's a wonderful truth to know that Christ is the anchor of our salvation, that it is not us who is the anchor of our salvation, but that it is Christ who is the anchor of our soul. And uh, it's always been that Christ saves and keeps the individual, and it will always be that Christ saves and keeps the individual. And so that's kind of what we've talked about. And uh, it ends in verse number 20, speaking about Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as we come to chapter 7, the entire chapter is dedicated to Melchizedek. And I have tried to be honest and tell you that this is a confusing portion of Scripture to me. And I was sharing with Brother Mike this evening before church. It's not that I have a hard time understanding what is said, but to really pull something out of this that I think would be very good or relevant or helpful to us and then communicate it in a way that I think would be helpful to us has been a challenge. And uh, so here we go. All right, and if, if it's not, I'll give you your money back later. 
okay? But uh, I trust that it will be helpful to some extent, and uh, we're just going to go from there. This morning, or this evening rather, I, I want us to think about something. We know this to be true. Uh, we know it to be true really in almost every area of life. But I want us to think about this statement, that some things are superior to other things. Some things are superior to other things. We know that, and we know that if some things are superior to other things, then that means some things are then inferior to those things which are superior. Not real deep, but that's important. It's important that we understand that tonight. Some things are superior over other things, which means some things then are inferior to other things. If you were to speak to a mechanic and you were to speak to them about their tools, the mechanic would say something like this. This manufacturer, this company, they make good tools. They would say something like this, maybe about another line of tools. They don't make good quality items. They don't put the craftsmanship in their tools. So they would say this tool is superior over this tool. This tool is inferior to this tool. Sometimes when you go shopping, you can tell the difference in clothes, the quality of craftsmanship or the quality of, of, of the item in hand. You can hold this item and you can tell this is a well-made suit or this is a well-made dress, whatever it may be, as opposed to this. And, and again, the, the examples could go on and on and on. This is superior. This is inferior. This is inferior, so therefore this is superior. Now, we live in a culture today and we live in a society today that almost frowns upon you and I stating the obvious. You should not say that this is superior and this is inferior. You, you should be very careful in how you word that. How dare you say that this is superior and this is inferior? No, 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 that's not the way that you're supposed to express that. And while culture says don't make such an assumption or don't make an assessment of things, here's what we know. It's just the fact. So I'm sorry if this disturbs you, I'm sorry if this offends you, I'm sorry if this upsets you, but this is superior and that is inferior. Now, I know this seems somewhat repetitive, but I want us to think about this. Some things are superior, which means other things are inferior, and our culture says, oh, but don't say that. That's so harsh and that's so critical and that's just so, so judgmental for you to make such an assessment of things. I understand where you're coming from, but the only reason that you're offended is probably because you like what is viewed as inferior by, say, myself or a host of other people. just the way it is. Superior, inferior. Now, if we believe that one is better than the other, should we be polite in our expression of that? Well, it probably wouldn't hurt things to be polite. But at the end of the day, this is just the facts. Now, we'll get back to this illustration, I hope, in a couple of moments. And maybe it'll help. I trust that it will. But how many of you ever have light bulb moments. We all have light bulb moments, don't we, where it's just kind of like, 
duh, why didn't I see that before? Why didn't that get my attention? I don't know why that is so, but this week and even this evening going over my notes, I was having some light bulb moments, and, and I don't want to keep bringing attention to this, but <laughs> I've struggled with this portion of Scripture, and I don't know how else to say it than to just be honest and say I've struggled with this. But I want us to think about something I've mentioned in sermons past, really not even recognizing the significance of it for tonight's message. But something that I have mentioned in sermons past is the fact that the nation of Israel, like our nation, had national heroes. All right, There were people in their past that they would have looked to with great affection and great fondness, and they would have been held in high regard. And so no doubt Abraham was one of the national heroes for the people of the Jews for what we would say would be obvious reasons. All right, so Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, it was Abraham whom God called there in the book of Genesis and said, I'm going to bless you, etc. Okay, the people of Israel, even thousands of years later, would have held Abraham in high regard. Now, if you think about the nation of Israel, it seems, I know that this would not be true of everyone, but it seems that many of the Israelites or many of the Jews they would have been strong in things like this, their heritage and their history and their tradition. It, those are things that they would have still held on to in many ways, and, and those were things that they would have taken pride in, and so they would have been very strong in their heritage, their history, their tradition, and things of that nature. And so I think that whenever we read the Scripture sometimes, you and I are ignorant to what some of this would have meant to them but to them, it made perfect sense, and they would have understood where the writer was coming from. All right, so if you keep that in mind, here is another light bulb moment I had, and I don't know why this didn't click with me earlier. It just did not. But throughout our study of Hebrews, the writer has referred to Jesus Christ as the high priest. Now, we'll see this more in just a couple of moments. But because of the tribe that Christ was born into, from the perspective of a Jew, it would not have made sense for him to have been a high priest because the priest came from the tribe of Levi. So here is Christ, and he comes from the tribe of Judah, okay? And so it would not have made sense for him to be referred to as the high priest because technically that was not a position that he should have filled, but that is the just the the basis from which the writer has described to the, the audience who Christ is, the high priest, who has done the work of the high priest on behalf of the individual. Now, verse number 20 of chapter 6, okay, verse number 20 of chapter 6, again, the writer says, "...whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." Tonight, I think if I were to ask you, how much do you know of Melchizedek, I think many of you would say this, I don't know much about him. Much is not written of him, so it is hard to know much of him. There is debate or there are differing opinions of who Melchizedek is. I will let you study and come to your own conclusions as to who you think Melchizedek is. I think there are compelling arguments on different sides of the subject, 
But for tonight, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at Melchizedek as a figure that we are going to reference throughout this message. And so in verse number one, here is what the writer said. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, what is verse 1 referencing? Well, verse 1 is referencing Genesis chapter 14, which would have been several thousand years in their past. But yet the writer assumes that the people would know who Melchizedek was, and the writer assumes that the people would know what he is talking about whenever he makes this reference. And so here's what the writer says in verse number 1. Melchizedek was a king of Salem, or a king of what would have been ancient Jerusalem. And it says in verse number 1 that he was the priest of the Most High God. And so Melchizedek is not only king, but he is priest, which means not only is he ruler, but he is also a spiritual leader or a spiritual overseer or a spiritual influencer. And so here is Melchizedek as king and priest of people, but he is priest of the Most High God. So he would be a spiritual representative of God as his priest. Does this make sense? Okay, it says in verse 1, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Now, if you think about the timeline in which this is written, then the Levitical priesthood has not yet been set up because it was Melchizedek who met Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob and Esau, who Jacob was the father of the sons who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. All right? Now it says in verse number 1 that he was a priest, so we know this, that Melchizedek was not a priest from the Levitical tribe. That would be impossible. Okay. Saying that for a reason, I hope you know. All right. So, in returning from the slaughter, it says that Abraham and Melchizedek met. And it says that in this meeting, that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. What does it mean to bless? It means to invoke a favor or some kind of a blessing on someone. And so, as Abraham, a national hero comes into the presence of Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, it says in verse number 1 that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. It was not Abraham who blessed Melchizedek, but it was Melchizedek who blessed Abraham. Now look in verse number 7. It says this, And without all or any contradiction... The less is blessed of the better. So what is he saying in verse number 7? He is saying this in relation to the blessing. The lesser was blessed of the better. Now what does that mean? It means this. If you were going to consider this by way of rank or position, if you were going to, to evaluate the men based on their position... Here is what you would have. Melchizedek was the better and Abraham was the lesser. Or we might say it like this, from the human standpoint, Melchizedek was superior and Abraham was 
inferior. Now, if you're a Jew, I don't know about you, but that doesn't really bother me. Because I'm removed from this 2,000 years ago, this conversation, and I'm not Jew by birth, obviously, or, or by association, and I don't know much about Jewish tradition, history, heritage, and things of that nature. But if you are a Jew living 2,000 years ago, and you are reading these words that Melchizedek was the better, and he blessed Abraham, who was the lesser, what you are hearing now is this, Melchizedek is superior, and Abraham is inferior and immediately some people could be bowing up just a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm not liking what I'm hearing. You're talking about one of our national heroes right now. You're, you're talking about the father of our nation. Uh, I don't like hearing you say that one was better than Abraham. And the writer would say this. You may not be comfortable with this, but guess what? It is true. It is fact. It is as it is. Melchizedek was superior. Abraham is inferior. And that's just the truth of the matter. How do you know? Well, someone might ask. Well, how do you know? In verse number 2, he said this to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being, by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider, he says in verse 4, consider or give attention to how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. He said, you need to understand this, and you need to consider this, that Abraham understood his position whenever he came into the presence of Melchizedek. Even Abraham understood that this king was worthy of a tenth or a tithe of all the spoil that was brought in as a result of the slaughter of the kings. And so here is, is the, the writer just laying it out before the people. You have to understand something. Melchizedek is superior over Abraham, though you may not be comfortable with this. And one of the examples of such being true is the fact that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil to Melchizedek. In verse number 5, he says this, And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood. Okay, the sons of Levi, they're the ones who are in the position of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So what's he saying? He's saying this. The Levites who are given the position of the priesthood, by commandment they take a tithe from you, their brethren, as a result of the law, even though you are from the same loins of Abraham. But he, in verse number 6, whose descent is not counted from them, okay, Melchizedek did not come from the loins of Abraham. He did not come from them. He is the one who received tithe of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So in verse number 8, and here men die, receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. 
And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithed in Abraham. You know what he said? He said, here's what happens, though you don't realize this or not. When Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, you, the Levites, who receive tithe from your brethren because of the position you are in by way of the Levitical priesthood, you also paid tithe in Abraham, or uh, through Abraham, to Melchizedek, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, I don't know about you, but right now, whenever I'm just reading through the scriptures and not thinking about a message, I'm kind of saying to myself, who cares? But this is important. Because here's what the writer is trying to establish in the minds of the Jews at this time, even the Levites who were in the priesthood. He wants them to understand that by extension through Abraham giving tithe to Melchizedek, they, who are the ones who generally receive the tithe, also gave tithe to Melchizedek. Why is that important? It's important for this reason. You know what the writer is saying? Melchizedek is even superior to you, the Levites, and you are inferior to Melchizedek, by way of association. As Abraham gave the tithe, so you gave the tithe because you are of the loins of the father, that being Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. So in verse number 11, he says this, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it, for under it the people received the law, then what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? He's saying to the fellow Jews, you've got to think about this. If everything that needed to be accomplished could be accomplished through the Levitical priesthood, then what need was there for another priest to come who would not have been of the Levitical priesthood? Why would there be a need for another priest that would be after the order or of the same manner or the same type of Melchizedek? The law at this point now had run its course. It had accomplished everything that it was designed to accomplish now. For lack of better words, we could say this, the law was now obsolete. For as good as it was, for everything that it was designed to accomplish, for all of the purposes that it held within the Levitical priesthood and, and everything that the priests did, if that accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished, then why would there be another priest after the order or the type or the, or the likeness of Melchizedek? See, it would make no sense. And so what he is trying to show them now is this, is that what Christ did is superior because what 
his existence and his work as the high priest has now accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. So therefore, the works of the priest from the Levites, all of that is no longer needed. And what Christ has done is superior over what the Levites or the priest can now do. So here again, you've got Jews. We don't know how many believers and how many non-believers would have been reading this letter. We don't know who all would have come into contact with this letter. But if you think about it, you have to consider this, that there would have been some who were still very much attached to the old religious system and the old way of doing things. And so now they are hearing that there is something inferior about their law and their priests from the Levites, and there is something superior, and the answer would be yes. See, in verse number 13, or verse number 12, he said this, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. I don't want to say this irreverently, and I don't want to say this inappropriately, but I want to say it in terms that I think we can all understand, and that would be this. Is that as a result of Christ coming as the priest, as a result of the priesthood changing, the rules have now changed. It doesn't matter how long the old rules were in place. It doesn't matter how many thousands of years God had that system in place. It does not matter how many sacrifices were brought to the temples. It does not matter how many offerings were presented. Everything is different and everything has changed because the new priest came and with the new priest, the rules or the law has changed as well. So he says in verse 13, and we're about to wrap up the, the scripture portion of this. He said, For he of whom these things are spoken, that being Christ, pertaining to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. He is saying this, listen, that which is written of Christ, he came out of Judah. Moses didn't talk about that in relation to the priesthood. And he says in verse 15, And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude or likeness of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of, carnal, of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, and you could say, well, who is he talking about in verse number 17? For he testifieth. Well, David testified of him in Psalm 110. The writer of Hebrews refers to him in verse number 5 as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so what he seems to be doing is trying to point them back to their history and saying this, that even David recognized Christ to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you may be sitting here saying, Brother Kyle, I have tried my best to pay attention, but I have no idea what you have tried to communicate tonight. So we're going to summarize this up, and hopefully we can understand this portion of it, okay? We have Christ, and the writer is writing from this thought being established in his heart and mind already that Christ is the high priest. He has done the eternal work for the sins of mankind with the offering of his life and the shedding of his blood there on Calvary. He did once and for all the spiritual work that was needed. 
in light of that, he points them to Abraham. And he says, I want you to understand that Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek. And it is obvious. There is no contradiction of this. It is just absolutely established fact that Abraham was the lesser of the two. And, and as a result of that, you by extension... You are a lesser of the two, and Christ is like Melchizedek, which means this, that in the work of Christ, everything that you have held on to now by way of law and tradition and history, that is inferior to the work of Christ, because when Christ came and the priesthood changed, the law also changed, the rule also changed, so everything you're doing spiritually related, if you're holding on to the law, if you're holding on to the works, if you're holding on to the old system, you must know that is inferior because the work of Christ is superior. Christ and what he accomplished, that is superior. Can you imagine some Jew sitting there with his arms crossed? I don't like that. I'm sorry. But we have our old system and it's worked for thousands of years. New priests, new rules. But the priests are good people. That's not even in question, though I think we could challenge that from what we know of so many of the New Testament practices. But my parents taught me this system. And that's fine. There was a time and a place for that. But with the coming of Christ, his work is superior over that of what is the old tradition and the old law. It doesn't matter if this is palatable or not. It doesn't matter if this is offensive or not. Christ is superior. And the work of Christ is superior. Now this evening, for just a moment, if need be, divorce your thoughts from everything that's been said to this point. It's probably not the best way to introduce this part of the message, but if you need to do this in order for it to make sense, it's all right. But I want us to think about the culture and the climate that we are living in. I said a few moments ago, we're living in a day where we are almost expected to not have an opinion that something is better than something else, that one is superior and therefore something is inferior. We're almost made to feel guilty that we would come to such a conclusion. But this evening I want to remind us that though that is the culture we are living in, from a spiritual standpoint, we must never forget that Christ is superior over every other work of religion and belief, no matter how offensive that may be to a world that wants to accept everything and call everything equal. Say, so, oh, Brother Kyle, I mean, I know that. I mean, good grief, that's established. You, you don't have to say that to me. You, you want to bet? Because, see, even in our Christian culture, you know what we're being told? We're all equal. We're all one. We may come at things from a different direction, but we're all seeking the same 
thing. We're all headed in the same direction. You know, I may come at it from this standpoint, and I may come from it from this standpoint, and I may approach it from this angle, and our family believes this, but we're all headed in the same direction, and we're all equal, and your thoughts are not better than my thoughts, and we're just, we're just all going to agree that we're just, we're all good, and we're all okay. You understand tonight that while we need to be polite, we need to be kind, we need to be gracious, that at the same time there needs to be a boldness amongst God's people to be willing to say this, I'm not questioning your sincerity. I'm not questioning your genuineness and in your thoughts and your beliefs. Listen, I'm not here to try to rip you apart and make you feel stupid. And and I'm not here to be offensive and and to insult you. But but I want you to know where I stand on this issue. And I want you to know where, where I am at and where I am by way of conviction. We are not all equal. We are not all of the same thought, and we are not all headed in the same direction, and we'll all get there eventually, though we take different routes. Here is what you and I have got to become more and more convinced of in this world that we are living in, is that no matter what anyone else says, Christ is superior over every other form of religion, over every kind of doctrine, every kind of denomination. It matters not how sincere or genuine the person may be, Christ is superior over all of it. Brother Kyle, you're talking about my family now. I know who we're talking about. Because I've got people in my family who have said things like this. I've got my own religion. You may have your own religion, you may have your own thoughts, you may have your own approach, but at the end of the day, from what the Word of God declares, which is what we say we believe, I have to be able and willing to say, even to my family, Christ is superior. (laughs) He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that no one can come to the Father except through Him. It doesn't matter if we're dealing with family. It doesn't matter if we're dealing with friends. It doesn't matter if we're dealing with co-workers. It doesn't matter if we're dealing with neighbors, that we have a good relationship. You and I must be persuaded in our heart of hearts that no matter how offensive or, or insulting this may seem in our culture, that we just stick to our guns, so to speak, and say this, Christ is superior which means, if you want to take it this way, your God, your religion, your faith is inferior. And I'm telling you, especially the younger people, we are growing up with no conviction, no backbone, no willingness to stand and say, no, that's not true, it's, that's not what the Bible teaches. We are becoming so mushy and weak and spineless in our approach to Christian living that we're afraid of insulting anyone by saying, no, Jesus Christ is superior over this religion, this religion, this religion, this religion. So here's a writer saying to Jews, I know this can't be easy to hear, 
But Abraham, he was inferior. You were inferior to this Melchizedek. And like Christ, who was made after the likeness or was after the similitude of Melchizedek, uh, he's our high priest, even though he's not from the Levitical tribe. As he came and completed what the law could never do, he is superior. Because with the new priest comes a new law. And if you struggle with this, I'm sorry. But it is what it is, whether you like it or not. Whether this world likes it or not, they have to hear and they have to be reminded, Christ and his work is superior. And without a recognition and an admission to that, there is no hope for the one who claims otherwise. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. Lord, I pray that you could use this message to be a help to each of us, maybe just reaffirming in our hearts and minds what we already know, but just sometimes it's good to hear it again. In this world that wants to put so much pressure on us to just conform to all the religious coming together, I pray that you'd help us tonight to be reminded that we can't afford to do that. At some point, we have to be willing to stand up and say that that's not so, that it's not true, and that we're not going to go along with that. And God, there may be some in here this evening who have struggled with the idea. They have struggled with because of all the influences in their mind and in their life that, that they've thought, well, maybe there are other ways that are just as good. Would you help us tonight to be reminded that you are superior overall. Everything is inferior to you. And we must serve you and accept you for who you are. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.